This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu for more information. At the beginning of 2008, crude prices are at record highs, creating immense wealth for oil exporting nations in the Middle East. And yet, the Arab economies also face what economists call a demographic bulge of a fast-growing labor force, and the challenge of creating enough jobs for this section of the population. This is happening at a time when the arrival of China and India is raising the competitive stakes for other emerging economies that want to make their mark on the global economic stage. How are the Arab economies dealing with these challenges? Howard Pack, a professor of business and public policy at Wharton, and Marcus Noland, a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics, deal with these issues in a book titled The Arab Economies in a Changing World. Knowledge at Wharton spoke with Howard Pack recently about his book. Howard, welcome to Knowledge at Wharton Podcasts. Good to be here. Start out asking you, economists are predicting that oil could average $85 a barrel in 2008, and the OPEC countries seem to be going strong. And yet creating jobs for young people seems to be a challenge for the Arab economies. What explains this paradox? Well, the OPEC countries largely are countries which have large amounts of oil and relatively small populations. A country like Dubai may have a native population of about 400,000. They, on the other hand, have immense oil wealth. On the other hand, countries like Egypt, which have very large populations, around 80 million, have very little oil wealth. Now, part of the wealth from the Gulf countries like Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, and Dubai gets uh, repatriated to Egypt because Egypt sends lots of workers to the Gulf. On the other hand, that still is a relative, given the size of Egypt's population, that has a relatively limited impact on Egypt. The same thing is true of Algeria, Morocco, and Tunisia. Algeria does have some substantial uh, natural resources, but it is um, diminishing, and the populations continue to grow relatively rapidly. The population growth has slowed down, and therefore, for the next 10 to 15 years, there's a very large bulge in the group of people between, say, 15 and 25 who will be looking for jobs. Uh, do you think the emergence of China and India will have uh, an effect on the Arab economies and their ability to integrate in the global market? The big problem that China and India pose uh, is of the following type. One way in which the Arab economies, at least ones that have large populations, could deal with this population bulge is to have a significant amount of employment generated by potential export industries. They're just across the Mediterranean Sea in many cases from the European market. They all have trading agreements with the European market. The trouble is that while that was a good model to try to pursue 25 to 30 years ago, whatever the Arab countries now trying to do, they face these two extraordinary competitors, China in manufacturing, India in services, and that represents a very serious problem. To try this in 2007 is very different from having tried to get on board this globalization train in, in 1977. Oil in the Middle East can't last forever. What strategies are these countries adopting to deal with the time when the oil runs out? What do you think of those strategies? Well, the countries in the Middle East have learned a lot from their experience in the 1970s and early 1980s when they again had a huge bulge in earnings from oil. 
And in some ways, uh, those resources were frittered away in, in wasteful projects, and to some extent, but much less than often thought, in corruption. What the countries are doing now is quite interesting. Most of them are trying to accumulate foreign exchange reserves. And indeed, several of the countries now have what are called sovereign wealth funds. These are huge agglomerations of capital controlled by the governments. And we know that recently Citibank was able to tap one of these sovereign wealth funds for almost $5 billion. They're also acquiring other forms of assets uh, throughout the world. And so they will they are hoarding those uh, dollars correctly or other foreign exchange uh, reserves correctly in anticipation of these reserves running down. That being said, some of the countries like Saudi Arabia have reserves that will last for a very, very long time. Now, regardless of how they, they invest the money uh, uh, overseas, as you, as you gave the example of Abu Dhabi that invested in Citigroup, uh, that's not necessarily going to lead to uh, an increase in employment within the Arab countries themselves. Uh, do you think that there's enough skilled labor in, in these economies to, to justify a labor-intensive growth strategy? Well, that's a good question, because partially what has to be known is to improve the quality of the labor force. And in the book, we note that quality, the number of years of education in the Arab countries, including the oil uh, countries, but also the non-oil countries like Syria and Jordan and the North African countries, the number of years of education have been going up um, quite significantly. On the other hand, the quality of this education is really um, open to question. Moreover, one of the things that's noticeable is they do not have large numbers of people enrolled in what one might call the critical areas of computer science, engineering, the basic sciences. So therefore, the possibility of taking in technology from the rest of the world and generating jobs for the lower skilled people is going to be limited by this absence of high-tier people. And then the question is, what do you do with lower skilled people? And in principle, one knows what should be done. One has uh, precedents in East Asia, in Korea and Taiwan, which have very similar problems in the 60s and 70s. The trouble is that the questions arise about the willingness of people to take some of those jobs. There's an extraordinary example recently in Jordan in which Jordan has a free trade agreement with the United States, which means it can export textiles and clothing, especially clothing, to the United States. A number of foreign investors have come in and established factories, partial, sometimes joint ventures with the Jordanians. Turns out that, quite shockingly, given the unemployment rate in Jordan, most of the workers that have been hired in these factories are non-Jordanian citizens. They are Bangladeshis, Pakistanis, to some extent uh, Indians, but almost no Jordanians. Now, there's a question of why this unwillingness to work in factories occurs, but uh, it is nevertheless a significant issue. As your book points out, the Middle East has seen relative political stability compared with places like Latin America and sub-Saharan Africa. And yet, this has resulted in what you describe as stultifying policy inertia. What policy changes do the Middle Eastern economies need? Well, there are some notable features of Middle Eastern economies. They have, despite uh, some reduction in the limits on imports, there's a a need to go through what is usually called import liberalization, reducing tariffs and reducing other obstacles to imports of foreign products. 
Then there are a whole series of internal questions which come up, which have not been dealt with. In the book, we have a very detailed example of the cost to potential Egyptian exporters, uh, the fact that the Egyptian port system does not work well, that the Egyptian airlines do not work well, that the road system is terrible, and a host of other things that have to be addressed directly so that the potential for exports, which in a country like Egypt, in principle, is large, can be realized. So the policies are, you know, manifold because they have to deal with things that can be done relatively easily, almost by the stroke of a pen, such as reducing tariffs. But then they have to become very good at uh, reducing a whole set of other obstacles to uh, successful businesses. For example, it takes a very long time in Egypt for businesses to get permits to do a variety of things. It takes a very long time to get a telephone connection. And while it's fashionable to say this is a result of being an Islamic country, as we point out in the book, it takes 10 times as long in Egypt as it does in another Islamic country, Tunisia. So uh, Islam by itself does not provide the (laughs) explanation. Are there some countries that are doing things better than others and which might offer lessons to uh, the rest of the region? Dubai seems to have a lot of things going on uh, for it. And uh, the quality of the people at the top in Dubai is really quite astounding. We had an executive education program here over the last year and a half for officials from Dubai, and they were spectacularly good and spectacularly well plugged into the international economy. I think that's less true in other countries. And and Dubai cannot provide an easy template for the other countries because it has very specific circumstances in terms of oil revenues and other things per uh, capita. So Tunisia and Morocco have done okay, but none of the countries has been spectacular. This is one of the things which is very interesting. Whereas in Latin America, one has Chile that has done extremely well, and Asia for a long time. One had Korea and Taiwan, and then joined by a host of other countries, and more recently by China, India, and interestingly by Vietnam. There have been no uh, champions of economic growth in the Middle East, and this is disappointing, and therefore there is not a confidence that if they change policies, they will succeed. And so there is no one country that has done spectacularly well. On the other hand, that being said, one has to notice that Morocco and Tunisia and Egypt have not done that badly. They've, they look remarkably like Colombia, which has not had spectacular growth. Doesn't look, Colombia doesn't look like Korea Taiwan, but they've done okay. But at the current rates of per capita income growth until this recent oil price spike, which may or may not last, they were growing 2 to 2.5% per year per capita, which means that it will take roughly 30 years, a little more, for their incomes per capita to double. Contrast that to countries where growth has been 5 to 6% per year, and where it takes 12 years for income per capita to double, and you see that they've not done well. In fact, your book says that, quote, the neural synapses that would link the latent productive possibilities of the Arab people with the goods and services demanded by the rest of the world appear to be weak or non-existent. How can that problem be overcome? That sentence, the neural synapse phrase, has has drawn a lot of attention. We gave several presentations in Washington uh, at the Peterson Institute, and people brought this question up very frequently. Currently... A big issue for most developing countries, if they want to become part of the world trading system, a large part of the world trading system is now dominated by 
both production and buyer's networks. Production network might be thought of as Dell assigning individual products from keyboards to monitors to a motherboard to other things to a variety of its sites uh, throughout the world and putting them all together on the UPS truck in the U.S. And you have buyer-led networks such as Walmart where a lot of products are ordered by Walmart, which knows a great deal about the factories producing them. Now, those networks are now exceedingly, exceedingly important. It's arguable that something like 60 to 80% of international trade is now accounted for by these buyer and seller networks. So the Arab economies could become part of these networks, but so far they simply have not. Uh, There's some weak evidence in North Africa that there are call centers being established, but it it is very difficult to see how the, this is going to occur because it's pretty late in the game. And if you ask yourself if you're an American business based in Chicago or a British business in London and you have to make a decision on outsourcing, would you go to China, where, which now has 30 years of successful growth and one knows roughly the parameters in China, or at this point to Vietnam, or would you go to Egypt or to uh, Tunisia and Morocco, uh, I think the decision has been clear, and the Arab countries get very little, remarkably little foreign direct investment. The other problem is um, people are always bringing up the questions of terrorism, and those can be overstated, but certainly the fact that you have roughly 60 tourists killed at the pyramids in Egypt and occasionally around the random violence in the resorts in the Sinai Desert in Egypt... That certainly predisposes international firms that might establish those neural synapses to say, we'll take a pass on this and think of other countries. Uh, Given what you've said, what might be your most pessimistic and optimistic uh, scenarios for the Middle East over the next five years? I think one has to think through the political scenarios. The Middle East also does include Iran, and one simply doesn't know what Iran will do. I mean... There are large numbers of people in the Sunni Arab world who are terrified of Iran, and they, it may deflect a lot of attention towards uh, nuclear we- weapon development and away from dealing with uh, economic policy. But the most optimistic scenario would be that the countries reform relatively rapidly, their ports become efficient, their roads become good, and uh, the new president of the World Bank, Robert Zellick, uh, has made uh, development in the Middle East one of his six priorities. That being said, I think it's going to be pretty difficult. But if all those things were to be put in place, I think the countries would have a good chance of growing at a somewhat greater rate uh, than they have been growing in the recent past, say, for countries in North Africa or for Jordan, 35 to 4% per year, which would be unprecedented for a sustained period of time in these countries. So that would be the optimistic scenario. In the Gulf, I think those countries will, assuming the oil price sticks, will um, do okay, though they still have, as you mentioned earlier, question, what can you do for a lot of the younger people who still don't have jobs there? The most pessimistic scenario would be a stagnation model in which they grow very slowly the way they've done uh, on and off in the post-World War II period. Between 1960 and 1980, they had reasonably good growth for the most 
part in the countries, 1980 to 2000, pretty slow. Part of that collapse in, 19, in 1985 to 2000 was due to the oil price decrease. Now, the, most of the countries have better policymaking in place, uh, and one should look carefully at Egypt, which has a lot of Wharton-trained MBAs in the government. That being said, one can conceive of a scenario in which political extremism, the threat of Iran, and the absence of a determined leadership leads to stagnation. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome. Thanks, Howard. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.